Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Since the beginning of the war of Russian aggression, we've seen extensive daily coverage of the situation on the ground in the Ukraine. And we know very well the state of public opinion there and the West's near unanimous support and admiration for the country's courageous opposition to the existential threat from the invading bully to the east. By contrast, we know very little definitive of the information landscape and state of public opinion of the Russian people. Not long after the war began, there were reports of anti-war protests sprinkling up around the country and thoughts of popular revolts bringing Putin down beguiled the West. Then the Kremlin enacted extreme laws requiring pro-government media coverage and using crackdowns to stifle dissent. Now, according to polls, Russian citizens strongly support the war. Does the polling just reflect fear on the part of everyday citizens of telling the truth in an authoritarian state? Or does some combination of Russians' love for the motherland, acceptance of Putin as the only president in national memory, resentment at the bite of Western sanctions, and a state propaganda machine that paints the war in stark terms integral to Russia's very survival result in a view of the war that seems unfathomable from the outside. Moreover, as the war lurches forward with no clear endgame, the messaging chasm continues to widen between Russia and much of the rest of the world, creating an information bubble around the population that is proving challenging to pierce. But to try to pierce it, I am thrilled to be joined today by the perfect group of three guests, all journalists who know the situation on the ground in Russia as well as anyone in the world. And they are Anne Applebaum, a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. She is a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Agora Institute where she co-directs ARENA, a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda. Her latest book is The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. Welcome back, Anne Applebaum, to Talking Feds. Thank you. Two first-time guests now join us. Julia Davis, a columnist for The Daily Beast and the creator of the Russian Media Monitor, which works to combat Russian state media and Kremlin propaganda. Her articles about Russian propaganda have been translated and shared worldwide. She is also a member of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, the Screen Actors Guild, and Women in Film. Julia, thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And from Istanbul, we're thrilled to welcome Tikhon Zedko, a Russian journalist and the editor-in-chief of TV Rain, the last independent TV station in Russia. He made the decision to stop operating after being ordered to tow the party line about the war in Ukraine. He has since left Russia, but continues to work as a journalist. Tikhon's also a former deputy editor-in-chief and host of the RTV1 channel and a former correspondent and presenter of the radio station Echo of Moscow. Tikhon, thank you so much for joining us from across the globe. Thanks for having me. Hello. 
All right, let's start briefly with the state of press freedom and public opinion in Russia as of February 23rd, in other words, the day before the war. And if I can start with you, you've described as of then the basic goal of Russian propaganda in the Putin era as creating a mindset of apathy and passivity among Russians. Can you flesh out what you mean by that? And I think you contrast it with Russian propaganda of yesteryear. Yes, of course. What we've seen developing since Putin came to power is, first of all, the slow takeover of all media and eventually all independent media, eventually the banning of all independent media in Russia. Some of it was done overtly, simply by the state. Some of it was done by friendly oligarchs purchasing television channels. But the result was that one way or another, although there seem to be a lot of different channels and options in Russian media, most of them are controlled one way or another by somebody close to the Kremlin, with the exception of TV Rain and a few other newspapers and websites that stayed independent and which, since the war began, are mostly operating outside of Russia, if at all. And those channels, coupled with the use of social media and with official pronouncements and other forms of propaganda, have had a very different goal from the one that some would remember from the Soviet past. So the goal of Russian propaganda, both domestically and internationally, is not to convince everyone that everything is perfect and we're creating a utopia and we are all idealists working together to create the perfect society. Rather, the goal has been to disorient people, to divide people, and above all, to make people apathetic, to give people the conviction that they can't do anything and they can't change anything because there are no options. The only possible leader who ever appears is Putin. You don't really see alternatives to him, or you're not meant to. You also have a constant feeling that you not only do not know what's true and what's not true, but it's impossible to know. An example of this was after the MH17, the Malaysian plane that crashed over eastern Ukraine in 2014, was shot down by, by Russian soldiers who were based there. Instead of simply responding by saying we didn't do it or by blaming somebody else, the Russian state put out literally dozens of different explanations. I mean, a lot of this was for Western consumption, too, but ranging from the absurd to the plausible to the ridiculous, you know, maybe it was Ukrainians trying to shoot down the plane. Maybe they were trying to hit Putin's plane, but they missed. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. And I, I saw an interview that was done, I think, by Radio Liberty a few days after that on those kind of street side interviews in Moscow, asking people what they thought had happened, who shot the plane down. And many of the answers were, we don't know and we will never know. You know, it's a great mystery and we can't find out. And one of the effects of this kind of this offering of constantly changing different explanations is that people are disoriented and they have this feeling that they can't know anything. And it's one of the things that keeps people separate from one another. It prevents people from coming up with coherent alternate narratives because there's so many different explanations happening all the time. I mean, one more example, and then I'll let the, the two real experts speak. But another example is even the justification for this war in Ukraine has already changed several times. There have been different versions of it. We're trying to defend the people of Donbass. We're trying to fight NATO. We were provoked by the Ukrainians and we had no choice. I mean, there are all these different reasons that are given. And I think one of the points of that is for people to wind up being disoriented. This is a whole nother episode, of course, but I, you can see a lot of potential parallels with the last few years and under Trump in the United States. Julia, you talked just this morning about the latest 
rationale offered. State TV, if I, as I read your article, has now moved kind of apocalyptic and made it seem as if the war is a sort of battle to the death where patriots can become martyrs and have eternal glory. Quite an upping of the stakes from the notion of liberating a few Russian nationals in the East. Well, for the internal consumption, they're basically telling people, here's the worst case scenario, and uh, you should be okay with that. But on the other hand, if that doesn't happen, no matter how bad things are, they should be excited that at least it didn't come to a total annihilation of all mankind. And they're actually shaming people for wanting peaceful, comfortable life, telling them why should we have a better life than our grandparents did. So essentially, that's the messaging there. And for foreign audiences, they are trying to scare off the West from continuing to help Ukraine by threatening them with nuclear weapons, which is basically all that Putin has left. It's uh, energy wars or threatening nuclear attacks. Hopefully he's not insane enough to actually do it, but this is why they're threatening everyone with that. And uh, to what Anne brought up, I wanted to mention the MH17 as far as uh, Russian state propaganda, that was such a marvelous moment in time that I actually created my very first video for the Russian media monitor back then because it was uh, remarkable. They had the same host on state TV who first told the story about the so-called rebels, which are totally Russia-controlled fake separatists in Ukraine who boasted about shooting down another Ukrainian plane. They showed a video of MH17 going down. Then the same anchor wearing the same outfit came out and tell a completely different story that Ukrainians shut down this uh, plane and it had shown the same video again. Part of it is too is they don't expect their audiences to question this, just to blindly accept it and not think about it, just totally disrespecting the Russians that are watching that because they're telling them completely different stories in the span of literally half an hour and uh, they're expected to side with whatever they're selling and if they don't then they tell them they're not patriotic enough. And that's another thing that's really changed in the last few years. They started telling them that propaganda is actually good and all information sharing is propaganda. So if Russia is selling propaganda and the West instead of the news, that's also only propaganda, then it's only patriotic for the Russians to side with their propaganda. And like Anne said, there is no truth. It's all propaganda. And if you're a good patriot, then you will side with our propaganda. So that's basically their approach right now. Tico, and I wanted to pick up on both those comments. And assuming you agree with Anne's portrayal of the state of propaganda just before the war. So now the war begins. There's initially a noteworthy wave of dissent some 15,000 people are arrested. We were all looking at it expectantly, hoping it might spread. Why did the onset of the war provoke this suspicion of the government that it's just sort of stopped in its tracks? Do they, in fact, oppose it as much as ever? But has was the law of March 4th enough to just tamp it all down? Well, I think the main problem with this topic is that we do not actually 
know what do Russians think about the war. When we look at these uh, polls showing that 83% of Russians are supporting Putin and are supporting the war, I think these polls just could not be trusted. Because on the one hand, uh, since the beginning of his presidency, Vladimir Putin has started to take under control all the sociological institutions, except one, the Vada Center. And the second problem is that it's impossible to have polls and uh, sociology in an authoritarian state. It's just like, imagine if someone approached someone in um, 1943 in Berlin and asks whether this person in Berlin supports or do not support this beautiful war to save Germany from Soviet Union or something like this. So I think the big problem is that we do not understand the level of support of this war. And I think that this level is much higher than it is presented by state propaganda and by uh, Russian officials. But the other important thing we need to understand is that this war did not come out of nowhere. There was a huge process over the last 20, 22, 23 years. And one of the first things Putin did when he became a president, he started to take under control, just like Anne said now, TV stations. One of his first actions was to take under control NTV. And he started to manipulate with people's minds. And the, the situation with the repression was becoming worse and worse in Russia. Over two last years, Russian society is really depressed. First, because of the COVID, and the government did not support people. The government used COVID to put more repressions. For example, all the rallies are forbidden in Russia because, as government says, it is not safe to protest in the streets because of the COVID. And on, on the other hand, two last years were really strong when we are talking about the repressions. More than 120 journals and the media were designated as so-called foreign agents. Alexei Navalny, the leader of opposition, was arrested and his infrastructure was destroyed and a lot of his supporters were arrested or were forced to leave the country. So Russia came to the February 24th in the atmosphere of fear. And then when this law about so-called fakes about Russian military was adopted, people just understand that they are afraid of losing their, their jobs or they are afraid of going to jail. So that's why I think it could seem that Russian society is silent, but there is a lot of explanation to it. That's the heart of the question, and it does feel inscrutable, but that's what I think we're most looking to the three of you for. There's a possibility of apathy and indifference. There's a possibility of fear. And you've written that you think Russians actually do support the war and it's not just Putin's war. What is your best sense, or is it truly inscrutable from where we all sit, of the feeling of the everyday Russian what are they talking about in the cafes? What are the genuine feelings here? So it should be made clear that I'm not there, yeah. and I haven't been there in a number of years. And so I'm not a person to ask about what ordinary Russians are are thinking. I mean, I can only tell you what friends tell me and what I can see. But I, but I think it's really important to stress something that Tihon just said, which is that it's not even a question of supporting or not supporting the war. Most Russians don't see any alternative. So one of the things that this kind of propaganda does is it eliminates alternatives. So 
Nobody is being presented with the Ukrainian point of view. Nobody is seeing pictures of the war from a different perspective. Nobody is given an alternative to Putin and Putinism to say, well, you could be against the war and then you could have this alternative. It's almost as if the, you know, the imagination is cut off and there are no alternate futures available. And so to not support the war means, first of all, of course, that you could be arrested and people don't want that. And some people it's okay to be arrested or professional dissidents, but a lot of people have obligations and families and children and elderly parents and they can't afford that. So it's partly this, this fear of arrest, but it's also, you know, protest the war for what? What will I achieve by doing that? Who is the alternative who's presenting a, a future of Russia that's not at war? And so one of, as I said, one of the effects of this kind of propaganda is to eliminate all that. It's not as if you could do a poll and say, you know, do you prefer Mr. Putin or Mr. Navalny, you know, or Mr. Kasyanov or Mr. Somebody else? There isn't that kind of alternative on the table for people. And so you support Putin because outside of that, there's chaos, you know, there's collapse. I mean, what is there? There's no alternative. So that's an important piece of the story. Another piece of the story that's maybe worth mentioning is that Russian propaganda has also been focused on Ukraine and on the West for a long time and has sought very deliberately to create pictures, first of all, of the West as degenerate, as declining, as dying. You know, this is not a civilization that you would want to be part of or have anything to do with. It's corrupt, it's decadent, and so on. Both Europe and the United States, with repeated television items about, you know, children being taken away from their families in Sweden by homosexual groups. People are too afraid to go out of their houses because of terrorism. You know, that there's this terrible life in the West that, that would await you if you were to change Russia's political system. They've also been told that Ukraine is a tool of that degenerate and corrupt West, and it's a fake state that has been created simply to defy Russia and to undermine Russia. So if you're for Ukraine or if you're against the war in Ukraine, then somehow you're fighting against stability and security here at home. So that's another way in which people's imagination has been limited. It's not as if they see some alternative in democracy that would be better than what they have, because the democracies that they see portrayed all around them are horrible places that nobody would want to live in. And Ukraine is the most horrible of all. Some evidence of that, by the way, is the, I was just in Ukraine 10 days ago, and we were told by military people there who were describing, who had been in some of the villages that have now been liberated, um, and were describing what people said about the Russian soldiers who came in. Many of them came in and were surprised to discover, you know, the Ukrainians live in brick houses and they own laptops, and they're much richer than they expected because they've been told that Ukraine is this dying, degenerate, impoverished society that is you know, the anti-Russia that's trying to undermine Russia. So the absence of alternatives, the creation of the West and of Ukraine as these disastrous societies, that also plays a role. And that's also why it's so hard for me to tell you what the average Russian thinks, because the average Russian doesn't know that there could be something better, or if they do know, they're likely to be afraid to say so. I would like to add that I think there is a very big group in uh, Russian society. These are people who are in uh, denial. They could understand everything, they could get information from the independent sources, but on some level, they are not ready to admit that their government is doing terrible things. I understand that it, it is not representative, but for example, I spoke with a, a lot of my subscribers uh, on my Telegram channel after I posted information about what Russians left in the uh, Kiev region, in Bucha, for example. And uh, some of these uh, subscribers, they were saying, I understand everything. I am against the war. 
I do not support Russia in its actions here, but I just don't want to believe that our soldiers could do such terrible things. If you admit that uh, your government is sending your soldiers to kill innocent people, it just ruins, ruins your life. It, it has to change your life because over the years you've been told that your government was a good government against bad fascists during the Second World War. Right. And now it seems that your government is, is becoming this fascist government, which means that you have to do something and you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do? And you don't have an answer to this question. Because if you if an answer to go and protest, you could face up to 15 years in jail. So that's why, as long as I understand, a lot of people, they choose not to do anything. They, they could probably understand what is happening. They could be against the war, but they prefer to sit tight and not, and not do anything. Got it. And do we know, Julian, maybe whether the average Russian does at least have access to and very effectively portrayed the state TV and the and the relentless messaging there, which I gather, by the way, is now much more technically attractive and, you know, really is what people tune into. But has everyone have the ability more or less, maybe by asking their kids the way we do on social media to at least hear the ostensible stories on the other side? Well, they are a very sophisticated nation in terms of using different electronic devices. Many of them have VPNs. They certainly, many of them, have the ability to go and seek out the other sources of news. Of course, they would have to proactively do it. What is being served up to them is just now what's left is just the exclusively state media, but they are very advanced technologically. Many of them use VPNs. Many of them continue to use social media despite the blocks and circumventing the blocks. What I found very telling is the state TV propagandists that run in as uh, pro-Putin circles, as you can imagine, and sometimes they say very revealing things. And what they said was that for a couple of days after the invasion started, majority of the Russians were very alarmed about what happened and were vehemently against it. Now, this is them saying that, that are running in the blatantly pro-Kremlin circles. But then they said Putin had this uh, rally where he tried to equate this to what happened in Crimea and justify it and, and do this patriotic drive. And uh, that doesn't mean that he actually convinced the people by that, although uh, there is a segment of the population that obviously chooses to follow Putin and believe what he says. But it convinced some and it frightened the others when they started to portray any resistance to that as meaning that people that are protesting it are traitors and are stepping out to attack their own motherland. So they are controlling some part of the population through propaganda and the other part of it through fear. And then, like Tikhon said, some of them choose not to seek out other information because then in turn it would make them feel guilty or feel the need to do something when what do you do in the kind of society that Putin built where there's basically 
no chance unless they come out in the millions. There's no chance to really affect what's happening there because it's such a militarized police state that any resistance is simply crushed. So um, I believe a lot of them are against the war. It's just some of them can't do anything about it and some of them side with the propaganda because it's just easier that way and they don't have to feel that enormous guilt of attacking um, innocent uh, neighbor nation. For the last eight years, they have been prepping them for this. Actually, when I was making pitches to my editor, a lot of times I'd have to say, well, all they're talking about is Ukraine. So there's not much in terms of uh, what we could cover. And for eight years, they've been talking about invading Ukraine. Sometimes they would say it would be Ukraine in its entirety, although most of them would believe that Putin would just expand his invasion of East Ukraine, take Donbass and be happy with it. So even though they were prepping people for a full-scale takeover of Ukraine, many of the most radical ones have always said that, although I don't think most of them thought that it would actually happen. And up until the invasion started, they were denying that uh, Russia would ever invade Ukraine, even said it would be total insanity, it's a brotherly nation, it would never happen. And then the very next day, they started to drive it the opposite way, saying we had no other choice. And now basically telling the citizens, you have no other choice, we're under sanctions forever, we're going to be pivoting east instead of west. And you just have to adapt to it and be a patriot and support your nation. And it's going through these hard times. And uh, they're not supposed to question or remember that it's no one other than Putin that brought those hard times upon them, not to mention upon Ukraine. Let's talk about those hard times. By the way, a crazy facet of this is how many families have Ukrainian and Russian blood or fat together and they're across a divide where they're literally incredulous as to one another. All right. So Tico and Anu, Julia, mentioned that it's very hard to believe some of the atrocities that are being reported, even if they hear about it. That's understandable. We've had parallels in our country. But does the average Russian have a sense that you just talked about hard times? The war isn't going so well. Is that something that filters back and creates a cognitive dissonance with what was supposed to be initially a fairly discreet and quick operation? Well, it's hard to see what average Russians think. There is a lot of Russians and a lot of Russians, they think different things. Always a, a standing problem, agree. Yeah, but, but I think it's, again, it depends on where do these people get information. If they get information only from the state propaganda, they would think that since the beginning, this is what was uh, planned by Russian Minister of Defense and the Russian army uh, left uh, Kiev region and Chernigiv region, not because it was defeated there, but because it was it was a plan, and now it's the second stage of the special military operation to take uh, under control eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine, and everything is going well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But those who get uh, information from independent sources, of course, they understand that everything is not going well. Julia just mentioned that a lot of people are using VPN, and the level of users of a VPN is is really high. For example. 
Russian uh, website, independent website, Medusa, which was blocked yeah. first days of the, of the war, just like TV Rain and others, they started to tell their readers to download and use VPNs several months ago. And now their audience uh, is growing, though the website is blocked. That's because a lot of Russians are using VPN services. So those who are getting information from independent sources, of course, they understand what is happening. They are following the war. Do they credit it or do they just think of it as Western propaganda? No, of course they believe it. Those who believe in independent information, they perfectly understand what is happening. They, they do not support the war. They understand that the war is not going well, et cetera, et cetera. But again, most of them think that they could not do anything with it because if they try to do anything, they would be arrested or something else. Are arrests still happening on the ground with some frequency? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. For example, just a few days ago, a famous Russian political activist, Vladimir Karamurza, was arrested uh, in Moscow, and he was accused of uh, spreading fake news information about the Russian military in the Senate of uh, state, state of Arizona, I guess, or somewhere else. No, the, the situation with this is so similar to what we saw two years ago in Belarus. Because, for example, just a few days ago, someone was arrested in Moscow and was fined for like $500 for wearing white, blue sneakers. And he was designated as a supporter of Ukraine, which means it was designated as a spread of fake news information about Russian military, which is it's just sneakers, just shoes. But we get information about arrests every day. I mean, not all of them are arrest for five or 10 years, just uh, just a few, but people are being detained and pay money for it, or they spend 10 to 15 days in, in a prison. Julia mentioned the sanctions. What about those? So we read that they've really visited privations on many Russians. The ruble value is down 50%. So I could imagine that plays into an overall dynamic of resentment toward the West and support of the motherland. Do you have a sense that that's a very big factor, again, on, you know, on the ground? My sense about the sanctions, which is, again, based on reporting and, and conversation, I'm, I'm not in Russia. Yeah. My sense about the sanctions is that they have not affected everybody equally. If you're somebody who worked for a Western company or you used Western products or you're in Moscow, you were more affected by it and you're more aware of it. My understanding, though, is that if you're not, if you're active in a different part of the economy, then you may not notice that much or you certainly haven't felt any kind of shock. I mean, there might be a slow deterioration of your standard of living over time or there are less things available to buy or there isn't something that you would have noticed from one day to the next. I'm worried about the sanctions because we in the United States and Europe have been sort of patting ourselves on the back about how great they are and how really tough they are. And this time they're really real. And I'm not sure that that's the case in the sense that they're felt by ordinary people. Stipulate that the point of the sanctions wasn't about ordinary people. They're designed to do a couple of things. One is to limit access to technology, which is supposed to have an effect on Russia's ability to fight the war, partly because it affects the Russian defense industry. And the others, some of them have been designed to specifically touch people who are thought to be close to the Kremlin or who are close to the top propagandists so that they are personally affected. 
So they weren't deliberately designed to affect many people. But nevertheless, the expectation that sanctions would somehow revolutionize how ordinary people think, I don't think is, if people were expecting that, and I'm not sure that the people who are designing them were, but I don't think that's been met. Got it. Ticone, you were invited to speak to President Zelensky in an interview targeted toward the Russian people, which is amazing, by the way, and quite a tribute to your unique stature within Russia. Do you have any sense about to what extent that got through? Well, there is a special operation, I would say, not to let a lot of Russians watch this interview, because one hour before we published the interview, Roskomnadzor, a Russian regulator on media, really the statement saying that it is not good for Russian media to quote, even quote this interview, which is absurd because they haven't seen the interview and they didn't know what was in this interview, but they were absolutely sure that they should not let Russians uh, watch this interview. I don't know the uh, exact numbers because it was published on several media outlets, on uh, our TV, our YouTube channel, on Medusa and on uh, all the others. But uh, a lot of people uh, watch this interview. The problem is that I'm pretty sure that those who watch this interview, they are getting information from the independent sources and they did not see anything new from the interview with uh, Mr. Zelensky. And the most important thing now is to reach those who are not usually getting information from the independent sources because that's how the society could be changed. Because we now understand that there is an audience of independent media, there is an audience of state propaganda, and there is a huge part of the society which uh, doesn't believe anyone or doesn't follow the news. And I think my goal, for example, as an independent journalist is to reach first this, this audience of those who doesn't believe anyone, and then second, to reach the audience of state TV propaganda and to explain them that white is still white and the grass is still green. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we discuss adding the right amount of water to a glass of whiskey without turning it into a whiskey river. The thought of adding water to any golden brown whiskey might bring tears to the eyes of some whiskey drinkers. But for others, adding a few drops of water to your glass has its merits and actually improves and enhances the flavor. The phrase open up refers to the release of the extra flavor you taste by adding those drops of water. And here's a little bit of science that helps reinforce that theory. When water is added to whiskey, it releases the guaiacol, which is partially responsible for the smoky and spicy flavor. When guaiacol is released, it rises to the surface so the aromas are more easily noticeable, allowing your palate to experience the smell and flavor that imparts on the drink. And while there's really no right or wrong way, some say adding a splash of water brings out the best in your glass of whiskey. Of course, going overboard with the water has diminishing returns, watering down the whiskey and proving once again that moderation almost always wins. So the next time you're thirsting for a little experimenting of your own, stop into your local Total Wine & More for a whiskey selection that suits every budget. And that's a scientific fact. 
So find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine and More. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Okay, let's try to look ahead and take a few moments in closing on the sort of what is to be done question, especially because it's beginning to look that, you know, none of us as military experts or prognosticators, but there's a strong possibility that this goes on and on and on. What else should be done from the outside to try to pierce the information bubble or influence the public opinion within Russia? What else should Western allies be doing, Western press be doing? It feels as if You know, at first it was kind of reactive, but now we're settling into a long slog. Is there something more that you think people in either Tico's position or back here ought to be thinking about? If you're asking me, I think one of the most important things is not to show to all the Russians that they have to be punished for, for this war. For example, when I see that some of my uh, friends, there was famous Russian independent journalists who fled the country. They are experiencing, that's a small thing, but still, they are uh, experiencing problems with their bank accounts in Germany because their bank accounts are blocked because they hold Russian passports. I think it's not the right thing to do because if you create a situation when there are Russians and there is another part of the world, it could happen that even those Russians who, for example, oppose the war, if they are discriminated because of being Russian, they would have to decide whether continue to be independent or maybe some of them would support Kremlin because it's the only way to, to survive. I, yeah. I think it's a very sensitive moment. On the one hand, of course, there is this huge discussion about uh, responsibility of all the Russians who did not do enough to not uh, let Putin start the war, etc., etc. On the other hand, again, there is a huge number of people who oppose the war, who are trying to do something. Maybe they are talking to their neighbors, which is also very important. And uh, these people, they could become a victim, for example, of sanctions only because they are Russian. So I don't know what would be done here, but I think it is something to be at least discussed. I would add to that that what I'm hoping is going to happen in the next few months and years is that at least Europe and America begin to make a big investment in support for you know the other Russia, the alternate Russia, the Russian media, Russian culture, My ideal is that there would be a Russian language university that would, I don't know whether it would be in Vilnius or in Warsaw or somewhere else in Europe, where Russians could study their own history and their own language and create that alternative that's missing in Moscow. Television stations, um, radio stations, at least that could reach Russians who are outside of Russia, which is now a large diaspora, as Tikhon described, the dissident diaspora. There are also Russian speakers in Moldova and Ukraine. In Germany, actually, there's two or three million of them. And making sure that there is a, a different Russia available for people is really important. I would also say that more broadly, inside the United States, we spend a lot of money, actually, on 
trying to get across messages and pass information and try and broadcast our ideals. And mostly it's divided up into lots of different places and pockets inside the U.S. government. It's not very well organized, I would say. I mean, we have the foreign language broadcasting. We have various pieces of the government that study foreign propaganda. We have public diplomacy, but they don't all necessarily work together. And I'd like to see a lot more thought going into how we can do that better. But support for not for Americans speaking Russian or American organized Russian publications, but support for Russians is is really the key to that. And I hope that continues. I'm reminded a little of the life of Russians in the diaspora of the 20s and 30s in Europe and their very strong culture that kept alive general protests of the new communist regime. Julia, any sort of thoughts as we move to a much longer horizon? Does you know Russia approach China now and look to it for support? Is it truly isolated as a pariah state on the order of North Korea and Iraq? What should people who are caring about trying to influence this situation on the ground be thinking longer range? Well, the way Russia itself is framing it is they're definitely turning away from the West. They portray to their citizens, though, that the majority of the global population is with them, just numerically speaking, when they're counting India and China as their supporters. So they are portraying it that way. They were talking about the ambassador from Bahrain, who uh, is said to be pro-Russian, which is traditionally allied with the United States. But as far as spreading the message, the key to it is definitely through Russians themselves. For example, when prominent Russians leave Russia because of their opposition to the war, the best thing we could do is amplify their voices, let them speak to our media outlets or whatever outlets there could be and amplify what they have to say because that has the best chance of being heard and received back in Russia where they could speak in detail as to what prompted them to leave, what prompted them to oppose the war, how they see this war, and uh, getting the Russians inside of Russia to hear that is more likely than to have us preaching at them. And also, the state media has refocused its uh, coverage lately. Instead of hiding what is being said in the West, they're actually showing a lot of what is being said in the West just so they could try to discredit it. So now they're hearing a lot more about what's uh, truly being said. And, for example, Lloyd Austin's uh, statements were translated and broadcast almost in their entirety in spite of him specifically saying that Russia invaded Ukraine and has to be held accountable and the whole of uh, the whole West is united in helping Ukraine defend itself, which uh, is now prompting them to describe uh, all of the countries that are helping Ukraine as the collective Hitler. So now they're saying this war will only grow by summer. It will become more massive and they're threatening to engage uh, the West as a whole. So it's pretty dire the way they're predicting it. I hope it doesn't end up that way, but this is what they're predicting. And unfortunately, even their propagandists that initially questioned the, the wisdom of starting this war are now saying it's time for us to be more aggressive because they've been lying that, that they were avoiding civilian uh, targets and casualties 
which of course they weren't, but now they're prompting them to be even more brutal and savage and totally crush Ukraine, which is uh, resisting, which for some reason they're so surprised that now they're striking back at Russia and it's spilling over across Russian borders, saying how could that be lawful, how could that be legal, although they never questioned why it was legal for uh, Russia to attack Ukraine to begin with. So it's very Orwellian and uh, people are called uh, by the state media not to question, but the key here is to to give those questioning it a bigger platform and amplify it by every means at our disposal. It's been an incredibly illuminating conversation. I know each of you feels that you're limited in what you know about inside, but in the world of the blind, the one-eyed man is king as it goes, and really it's hugely Helpful, interesting. And Tikkun, I just want to say, you know, kudos and props for the courageous work you continue to do. All right, we are out of time in what has really been a fantastic episode. Thank you very much to Ann Applebaum, Tikon Zedko, and Julia Davis. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. We are available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. And we also now have our own YouTube channel where you can find video content including our latest Talking Books series. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post one-on-one discussions with national experts on a variety of topics. Just in the last few days, we posted discussions with Jonathan Haidt about the effects of social media on society, and with Jessica Bruder about the rapidly changing landscape for abortion care in anticipation of the Supreme Court's historic decision coming next month. So there's a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look to see what we've got and decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Adam Macias is our consulting editor. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude goes out, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.